Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zhou, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTV. This week's message is brought to us by senior pastor Clint Shamblin. He is preaching from 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 20. If you guys don't know me, my name is Clint. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I get to jump back into the first John series that we had before we went through the difficulties of Christianity, where we kind of try to tackle uh, as many things that are difficult about faith as possible, raising some issues and trying to answer them well, and then getting into our Palm Sunday and Easter services. So today we go back to first John. And today's topic, the catechism question, was a big question. Uh, today's sermon, today's scripture, today's concept is also a very, very big concept. It's so meta, as a matter of fact, I need to frame some things and then get, get down to the meat of it. Today, as we jump back in, I want you to leave knowing what is love and how to love better. What is love and how to love better? And this is why it's so big. We, we say, what is love? Uh, uh, how do we define it? How do we know it? And we can come up with a million different answers to that. Love is one of the hardest things to try to describe, to try to understand, to try to get a grasp on. And yet, what I want to do today is give you at least a better picture, to try to define it, to try to give some, some, some handles on it, as well as then to say, here's, here's how you love. What is love and how you love, and going on from there. Now, when I say love, I'm going to come from it, come at it from a biblical understanding of love. Why do I say biblical understanding of love. Because love should be love, should be love, should be love, right? We typically think, no, we can, we can all find some common ground. There's some things that we can all agree on and, and coalesce to understand love is love is love. And actually what the Bible tells us is that's not true. Um, Charles Taylor, he's a Canadian philosopher, really insanely, insanely bright, bright author, writes in something called A Secular Age. Uh, and this is the type of book that uh, only really sadistic people read. Uh, I mean, it is this thick, although it takes a year to try to get through all of it. Brilliant writing, brilliant all the way through. And what he says in it, there's actually a a companion book that's like this big, uh, and it summarizes everything. Somebody else who's smart took it and summarized it down. I read that one. Um, Charles Taylor says in his book, he, he says that for the last 500 years, essentially, we've been dwindling from a a faithful age, a believing age, uh, an age in which people maybe understood, maybe it was common ground to say that there is an afterlife. For 500 years, we've been dwindling down, and now we enter an age that's called a secular age, meaning majority of people, majority of people believe that after you die, there's nothing. You're animated, cells bounce together at a certain temperature, you animate together, then you die, and then nothing. Nothing happens after that. It's just darkness. That's a vast majority of people. And it's actually quite wild what happens when that's the vast majority of people believe that. What happens in a secular age, as he so eloquently puts, is that it changes how you interact with the world, how you interact with people. It's so pervasive to who you are that actually Christianity, actually those who are a faith, actually those who say there is something beyond this life are now looked at as, as some sort of perversion of the truth as some sort of diabolical means, as, as at minimum, a really weird-looking animal. That's, that's at minimum. At most, you might get 
people who come at that and say, this is a horrible worldview, this is a horrible understanding. That's what Charles Taylor says. And the drastic effects of that actually connect to what we say is love. What we say is love. Because if our secular age is true, if Charles Taylor and all his research and all his writing is correct, that the vast majority of people believe you have 78 and a half years on earth and then you die and nothing else happens, that belief dictates how you live today. That understanding, that hope or no hope, that reality, that understanding, that worldview changes how you live today. Because if all you have is 78 and a half years, or depending on what country you live in or what, what sex you are, uh, 76 and a half or, or 80 in some Nordic countries, I don't know. Um, if you have a fish diet only or a vegetarian diet or carnivorous diet, it all plays into it, but that's all you have. That's, you're locked in. Then what happens after that is it dictates how you live today because majority of people will say, get what you can, enjoy life to the fullest now because you don't get, you're not promised tomorrow and we're going to nothing. We're going to be worm food tomorrow. And then we're part of the circle of life and that's it. What happens if that's true, and I think he's true, he does a very, very convincing job of showing me it's true, Charles Taylor does, the secular age, then love is either one of two things. Love is purely emotionalism. It's purely a desire to connect with somebody else based solely on emotions and nothing else. Um, if I was to say to you, um, uh, is it wrong that big corporations only care about the bottom line and nothing else? That all they care about is, is, is money and making a ton of it and living comfortably and living well. We might say, no, that's horrible, that's sinful, that's awful. Well, a secular age worldview would say, I can only say that because I'm not the one with all the money and the comfort. <laughs> I just have an emotional response. I, I feel this is bad. I feel this is awful. Look at the people that it's affecting. Look at if that's all we care about, it, it steals from us our happiness. And what they mean is, I, I want to be as comfortable as possible for 78 and a half years. That's what I want. So we look at that and we say, no, it's wrong because I, I'm not, I'm, I might be the one that's not comfortable. Conversely, the other opportunity is to say, no, 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 it's purely emotion or it's purely action or it's purely, I'll use the term animalistic, meaning this, it's determined. It's, it is what it is, what it is, you can't change it. Meaning, if somebody is uh, uh, kind of mean and awful towards other people, we can't look at them and say, that's not loving. What we just have to say is, well, that is an animal. Uh, that is the type of person they are. It's kind of like that scorpion and the frog analogy. Scorpion wants to get across a creek, finds a frog, says, hey, frog, would you take me over there other side? And, and the frog says, no, you're a scorpion. You're going to kill me. Scorpion's like, no, 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 I won't. I promise. Frog's like, okay. Scorpion hops on the back of the frog. They start going across the creek, and the scorpion stings the frog. The frog turns around and says, why'd you do that? The scorpion says, I'm a scorpion. It's what I do. Either... If all we have is this time, 78 and a half years, either we can say, I, I just personally prefer a world in which corporations don't run everything. And you can't say it's right or wrong. It just is. Okay, that's one option. Or the other option is, it just is and stop trying to change it. One says preference, one says action. One says emotionalism, the other says it's just nature. Uh, and if you remember anything from uh, maybe your undergrad, maybe, uh, maybe some psychology 101 classes, if you ever took it, and then you realize to be a psychologist, you have to go on to graduate school, and you're like, forget that. 
and you stopped. Remember nature versus nurture, right? This is the big, this is the big conversation. Which one wins? And the reality is, how do we love out of that? How do, we, how do we get something that is affectionate after that? And the reality is this, church. The reality is this, friends. Both of them are right and both of them are wrong. Both of them are right and both of them are wrong. Um, I've been boring Haley, my wife, to death this week. Uh, I just picked up a new book called um, Surrounded by Idiots. Great title, right? Uh, and it was a bestseller, I think, in Sweden. Uh, I believe it's the country that it was from, and it got translated into English. Uh, and what it talks about, it uses the DISC profile assessment, and, and it talks about the different types of people. Uh, the, the achieving type gets stuff done very speedily. The dreamer type can never be on time for anything because they think there's always something better to do. Uh, there's the, there's, I call it the hobbit type. It's the, it's the green in this test. It's people who want no change ever. They just want to be comfortable and, and get along with everybody. It's the kumbaya crowd. Um, majority of people in the world live in this camp. And then there's the blue crowd, which are all analytical, all researching. And I've been boring my wife because I've been fascinated by this. And it's really, really helpful to understand where people come from, but there's also a, an incorrect assumption in the author's whole entire understanding. The author observes these four type of people in the world and then says, and they're all right and not a single one of them is wrong, so just deal with it. And you go, well, that doesn't seem right. That seems a little off. That, that seems to be that, that if somebody is, is doing something that's unhealthy in the world, we should be able to say, hey, stop doing that and change. That seems good. That seems honorable. But the author says, nope, you just got, it's just observation. We're just animals. We're just living in this world. Here's how the four types of animals are, and let's move on. And I go, ooh, that's not very loving. Because what I'm, what I'm going to try to suppose to you, what I'm going to try to show is if we believe love is only emotional, only affectionate, or only truth and only action, we'll get to what the scriptures, First John tells us, we can never say, ever, ever say the injustices of the world are wrong and horrid and we need to change them. We can never say that. Because if it's purely emotional, all we can say is, well, I feel this thing is wrong. You should feel it too. And when somebody says, I, I don't feel that, we're at a loss. We're done. We're toast. We go, okay, let's agree to disagree then. And if it's purely observational, if it's purely animalistic, if it's purely action, we can't say injustices are wrong either because in that case, it's the strong eating the weak. And if you're part of the weak, tough. It just is. Scripture tells us, the Bible tells us, love has been modeled for us. Love has been given to us. And because it's been given, because it's part of our nature now, we get to nurture it. Because it's been part of our nature now, not intrinsically, we get to nurture it to other people. And that's what, first, that's what John tells us. John tells us love is more than affection. It's more than action. It's a given response. It's more than affection. It's more than action. It's a given response. Let's start first by saying love is more than affection. Um, I think I was uh, uh, talking to a group of people and... and the subject came up of dating and future spouses and that sort of thing. 
Um, and I always get a kick. I always ask every single time somebody brings up, it goes, okay, what are your non-negotiables with a future spouse? It's wild what y'all have. Like, sincerely, it's wild to me. Uh, I was actually listening to somebody, and they, they, they said something along the lines of, well, here's the height they have to have. Here's the income they have to have. Here's, and I was like, <laughs> I don't know anybody like that, just so you're fully aware. There's, and I don't know anybody else that knows anybody else like that. You're looking for a unicorn. You're like, yes, I'm looking for a unicorn. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> You'll never find that person. And even if you do, you know what will happen? They'll disappoint you wildly. So maybe stop looking at the unicorn like that. Maybe, maybe stop doing it. And the reason they say, well, I have to have affection. I have to, have, I have to feel passionate towards this person. I have to have feelings. And I say, of course you do. Of course you do. Um, the converse side of that, people will say, here's my list. And the other side of that is when I ask people, how'd you all meet? And people don't want to say, well, I saw them from across the room and I, find, I found them attractive. Nobody wants to say that, especially in church. It sounds weird, doesn't it? To like, pardon me for being crass for a moment, like, they're just hot, right? No, like, no I'm better than that. I was, I was drawn to her personality. I was like, bro, you haven't even talked to her. <laughs> I could just tell. I'm like, okay. Sure. You find the other person attractive, and then you start getting to know them. Attraction starts it, but if that's where you stay in life, if you only stay in affection, we have a word for that. Do you know what it's called? Lust. If you only stay in attraction, if you only stay in, oh my gosh, they do some sort of emotional response to me, we call that lust. We don't call that love. We call that affection, we call that emotionalism, but it's certainly not commitment and covenant to somebody else. We're gonna to get to that. Now, it says in verse 16, where do I get this from? It says in verse 16, we know this is love, that Christ laid down his life for us. And really quick, that's the definition of love. I said before, I want you to give you a definition and then some, some handles on it. If you were to define love, John says that's it. We know this is love. Christ laid down his life for us. Now, really quick, is that very helpful to us as we try to understand how to interact with one another? If we just said that mantra over and over and over again, it wouldn't be so helpful. It's shorthand. It's very, very shorthand. I was uh, in a meeting um, uh, the other night with corporate people, and I, I don't mean to have that reaction, but y'all talk a different language than me. And they are using acronyms together, and they're like using three-letter things. And I'm like, wow. What are you talking about? What's a VSPCD? I'm like, what is that? And they're like, well, clearly. And they say, it. I'm like, oh, yes, clearly. I'm like, I have no idea. This is shorthand in theological terms for love. So let me, let me unpack it for you. When it says, we know this is love, that Christ laid down his life for us, it's shorthand. It's a summation. And it means this. When it says, Christ laid down his life, it's not affection, it's not feeling. Christ didn't look at us and say to us, I love you so much because I have such marvelous feelings for you. That's not what it means. It means so much more than that. Verse 17, he goes on to say, if anyone you know is in need and you aren't moved by pity. Now this is where I wanna focus on. The shorthand is, we know this is love, that Christ laid down his life for us. Okay, great, that's a good summation. And then John goes on to explain. If you see somebody else in need and you have something to give them and you're not moved by pity, he chastises us, you might not have the gospel. 
And we go, oh, goodness, okay, our eyes get big, our eyes get wide. Now, I want to take a moment, and I want to explain this term pity. Because doesn't pity sound emotional to us? Pity sounds responsiveness. Pity sounds a, a very big feeling word. Actually, pity in the scriptures isn't feeling-oriented at all. It's not emotional at all. Uh, to do this, I was uh, reading a bunch of sermons this week, and one I was reading was on racial reconciliation and the hope of racial reconciliation. Uh, and in it, it was really, really wild. The, the pastor was extolling uh, white people. And he said, white people get very nervous when we talk about racial reconciliation. Do you know why we get nervous talking about racial reconciliation? Because racial reconciliation demands we talk about culture. And do you know what white people think of culture? I just, let me be, let me speak authoritatively for all white people. Yes, I can do that. Um, here's why, typically. We don't think we have a culture. Do you know what we think typically, and studies and sociology can back me up on this. We think we are the culture. That's the, that's the problem. We don't think we have a culture. We think it's just natural. It's like, of course, of course this is the culture. Of course this is Americanism. Of course this is. And we just assume it's there. It's the right way, is what white people typically think. And, and again, studies can back me up on that. And here's why I bring that up. And what this pastor was saying was we can't think that way. We must identify the ways in which our culture is a culture and influences our direction and our decisions so that we can understand others. We must do that. So let me apply it to us. Friends, would you, would you do this? When you read the term pity, don't do the thing about culture. Don't assume you know what that term means. Don't jump into it and say, well, of course it means this. Of course it's an emotionalism. Of course it's a response. Of course it's not if I'm not moved to tears by something. That's not what it means. So challenge ourselves. Say, what does the Bible mean by pity? Here's what the Bible means. It's a term that actually kind of has medical connotations. It kind of means intestines. It kind of means gut. It kind of means the central place of your entire being. When it says if you look at somebody in need and you are not moved in your, the term we use is deep in our bones. If you haven't heard that term, the thing that you know that you know that you know, you're compelled by something. You're moved by it. Now, the reason why John says that is he says this. If you aren't moved in your innermost being, the thing to which all the decisions sit, think of it as, uh, as any, any space uh, uh, epic, any space fantasy, always has a, a commander seat in the spaceship. Um, think of that as the pity Think of that as emotion. Think of that as the thing that John is saying. The commander seat of your life. If you see somebody in need and you have the ability to help them and the commander seat of your life isn't moved to help them, you may not know the gospel. You may not know the gospel. See, it can't be only affection. It can't be only emotion. Because what John says is, if your entire worldview isn't shaken at the core of looking at somebody else in need and you going, I can't help but help them. I can't help but give. Because I have so much, because I have what they're asking for, I will give it to them. John says, that's how you know love. Because when Christ looked on us, he had pity for us because he had something that we needed and he gave it to us willingly. 
And it wasn't an emotionalism. It wasn't a plea. It wasn't, it wasn't anything other than a worldview decision to give us what he had. And he gave it to us aplenty. Affection cannot mean love. It may start the process of getting to love, but it cannot be love. And John later on goes on to say, if you see somebody in need, you don't give them. And then he says, let us not just speak about love. Church, friends, do we ever get to the point where we say we want to do something, but then we never do it? And the question that John is saying is, then you never wanted to do it. And we go, no, 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 that's, that's really unfair. I wanted to do it, I just didn't get the time to. If you really, really, really want to do something, friends, don't you, you put your mind to it and you do it, don't you? If you really, really wanted to do something, you would do it. And you put your mind to it because it encapsulates all of your livelihood. If you said, I want this job, it's my dream job, I'm gonna go get it. How much time do you spend crafting a resume, getting the right network connections, learning about the company, learning about the people, learning the, your, your employer's favorite type of coffee and bringing it to them at the interview? It's a resourceful. You'll put the effort, you'll put the intentionality into it if you really want it. And what John is saying is, if you want to help people, you will, and if you don't, you won't. Um, I might butcher this, so all you Star Wars people can hate me for it. That's fine. Yoda has something along these lines. There is no try. Do or don't do. Is that what he says? No. <laughs> I told you. I could do it in the voice. Maybe it'd make it better. No. Okay, I'm not going to do it in the voice. There is no try. Period. <laughs> Either do it or don't do it. That's what John is saying. Stop saying you're going to try and either do it or don't do it. And if you do it, it means you want to. And if you don't do it, it means you don't want to. Uh, I remember uh, hearing a story about a group of pastors that went to Scotland. Uh, and they were from the south. So there were a bunch of uh, southern pastors, went over to Scotland to connect with other pastors over there. And they started talking. If you know anything about the, the history of those two locations, Scotland has a rich, reformed theological tradition. Uh, and, and the South has a similar Reformed theological tradition. And so they met together, and they started having a robust conversation. And these people were fast friends because they went down the, the, the biblical uh, theology, and they're like, oh, my gosh, we agree. The Bible is inerrant. The Bible is the word of God. There's no other way to salvation through Christ. This is fantastic. This is glorious. The church is the only hope for the world. Oh, my gosh. And they were having dinner, and they were having a good time, and the, and the Southern pastors went back to their room. like, oh, my gosh, we have all these new friends. Look how great this is. Affection. The next morning, they woke up, and the Scottish pastor started talking about government in Scotland and political views. And if you know anything about these two regions, they don't agree. That's putting it politely. And all of a sudden, the pastors from the south went, oh, no, we don't agree on anything. I can never be friends with these people. I can't, I can't work with them. All because affection was taken away. To choose to love somebody else, to give them what you have, means this. It cannot be based upon feeling. It must be something deeper than that. It has to be. Pity is saying the central nervous system of our entire life is moved by somebody else in need. That's the first point. The second point is this. Love is more than action. Verse 16 goes, again says, 
Christ laid down his life for us. Now, you might be saying, Pastor, that's an action. He laid down his life. He died. That, that's action-oriented. But it's, it's interesting because it says he laid down his life. Christ loved us by dying, yes, but it's not just action. It's an entire posture. It's an entire willingness. It's an entire heart attitude. See, when he laid down his life, he did so willingly. It wasn't out of obligation, and it wasn't just action. It was an entire posture, a worldview that said, I, I will do this because I can't help but do it, because I'm so overcome by a worldview, by a central nervous system that has to do this out of love. That's what he says. I laid down my life. Scripture says no one can take Christ's life. He must give it up willingly. He must give it up willingly. So, on the cross... If Christ was not prepared to die, was not prepared to face the abyss of blackness and separation from God, it wouldn't have happened. He wouldn't have given it up. He wouldn't have breathed his last breath. He wouldn't have exhaled and said, I give this to you. No one can kill God. No one can kill Christ without Christ willingly submitting to them. That's really important. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Uh, now, this next point, I talked to somebody who is focusing on counseling in their life right now before service to make sure I wasn't blowing smoke. I'm not going to tell you who it was, but Eugene was very, very helpful uh, in this process. Uh, he was. He was wildly helpful. Because here's the statement that I made, and I, I checked it with him to make sure that out of a therapeutic, out of a, out of a uh, humanity, out of a psychological understanding, there's some commonality. And I think Scripture has the truth that when we apply it to our human nature can really give us some understanding. Scripture says what Christ says is, I lay down my life, no one else can take it from me, meaning you can't make me do something I don't want to do. Now, people come to me constantly and ask for pastoral advice, and they'll say this word to me, or, or this phrase along the lines. It happens in marriage, it happens with friends, it happens with roommates, it happens in church, and they'll say, well, so-and-so did this to me, and they made me feel this way. And I stop him, I go, oh, hold on a second. No one made you feel any way. And they're like, well, yes, they did. They did something, and I reacted. I said, ah, that's different than they made me feel some way. Because the reality is, if I understand emotions, and this is what I checked, if I understand how our feelings operate, how our bodies operate, is we have a choice based upon a response. Somebody can do something to you. Somebody can be mean to you. Somebody could be happy to you. Somebody could be pleasant to you. Somebody could say, I love you, and you have a choice to reciprocate that love or not. You don't have to love somebody back. So we, we look at, you know, somebody has hurt me. How dare they? They made me do it. And most people sympathize with that, and we kind of actually get close to saying, yeah, they, they did make you do that. Flip it. Somebody comes to you and says, I love you. I'm going to make you love me. I will force you to love me. What's happening in our brain right away? We're going, that's called a stalker. Stay away from that person. They can't make you love them. And it's true. And that's healthy, by the way. So the same thing can be applied when somebody does something negative to me. I, can re I am influenced by everybody. I am affected by everybody. I can't say, um, I was joking before service again, I can't say I'm only stoic. I can't say, no, nothing... I'm impervious to feeling. That's stoicism. And the Bible says that's, that's wrong. That's where I lean. That's where I tend. 
But if I believe that, then people couldn't affect me, that when other people come to me and encourage me or chastise me or rebuke me or give me edification, I wouldn't be affected by it. That doesn't seem very loving, does it? Could you imagine being in a relationship with somebody that no matter what they did, you were never affected by it? That they gave you tons of gifts, they spent a whole birthday celebration giving you your favorite cake, your favorite activity, your favorite movie, and you're like, eh, cool. What would you do if you were that person? Like, this is the weirdest relationship in the world. Nothing I do affects you. Nothing I do gets through to you. It's not good. And this is why it's so important to see. This is why it's so important to see. We may be influenced and affected by people, but we have a choice how we respond because it's exactly what Christ did. Christ did not act solely when he died for us. It wasn't just an obligatory thing. It wasn't just duty. When he says he laid down his life, it's his life, it's his choice. He took a posture that said, I will deny myself and take up the cross. Friends, do you deny yourself for the sake of somebody else? Or do you only, must you only react? Well, I felt this way, I must do this. Because that's being, I'm about to start preaching against culture and a lot of it's going to rub up against some of us. That's not being genuine to who I am. I think we get away when we say, well, I'm just being genuine to who I am. I think that's just code for I want to be a jerk. Sometimes. Isn't it? I think sometimes we must say, yeah, I want to act this way, but I'm going to deny myself because it's not good. It's not great. Christ did that, where he said, Father, don't make me go to the cross, but I'll deny myself. I'll say, Christ, this is good. This is, this is what love is, and he will do it, and he did it willingly. Christ is the only one who could have given up his life, and he did so. The only motivation he had was a central nervous system of pity that wasn't looking down on us, but looking at us and seeing our need. And he had all the treasure in the world to give us. Friends, we had so much sin, he was sinless. We had so much unholiness, he was holy. We had so little, he had the entire heavenly realm at his disposal, and he gave it to us. Out of his treasure trove, he gave to us action-oriented. Yes, it is action, but it's more than just action. It is what 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, that we were purchased at a price. And 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, you were purchased at a price, so honor God with your bodies. Why should we honor God with our bodies, with what we do, with how we act, with how we live? Because we've been purchased at a price. Because somebody has given us something that is far better than anything we can have. Lastly, love is always acted upon. Love is not an action, but it's always acted upon. See, one of the main central aspects of the gospel is this. We think the gospel is just a personal belief, just an internal belief. But actually, the gospel says you become an open-handed individual where you look to somebody else and say, all areas of my life are open to you. Imagine if you were in a relationship with somebody and uh, you started going down expectations. You said, well, you can, you can have my emotions, but think of marriage. A married couple doesn't do this. You can have my emotions, but you, you can't have my body. 
Actually, Scripture indicates, quick aside, Scripture indicates that the main sexual act within married couples is to give yourself to the other person. Now, that flies in the face of our culture today, doesn't it? Because sex is all about what can I get out of it? Did I feel good? And Scripture says, no, 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 no. Sex is where you give yourself to the other person fully and completely to serve them. Could you imagine if that was our approach to sex, what, what would change in our hearts and our minds? It'd change a ton. It would change so much. If married couples said, well, you, you, can, you can have my, my body, but you can't have my finances. Those are mine. I don't come together for this. You can have my finances and my body, but you can't have my time. I'll, I'll, I'll come and go as I please. It wouldn't be a marriage. It would be an unstable relationship, wouldn't it be? You need to say, no, I'm giving myself to you. Body, mind, soul, finances, affection, hobbies. Married people, hobbies. I know we don't like that. I know we don't like going golfing with our significant other and we think it's just a headache. All y'all are getting in a golf, which by the way, yes, please. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that more. Um, come on now. Baseball. If you all loved me, you would know baseball. These are the sorts of things that we learn of one another. Why do we do it? Not because we have to, or not even because I have affection for it. Because I have affection for the one who's doing it. That changes me. Do you see, friends? Do you see how it changes? Verse 18 says, love in action and in truth. Love in action and in truth. And if we understand the connecting material, it says this. If I am to love in action and in truth, I must love outside of my own preferences. I must love outside of my own preferences. I have to. Because if I only loved people that looked like me, talked like me, thought like me, how many people would I love? One. Me. Do you know what the definition of sin is? Love of self. If I loved based upon what I want, what I think, and what I do, I'd only love myself, and that is literally the definition of sin. I want, I get, I, I am king, I am God. And Christ says, no, 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 no. Do not be selective in your preferences. Do not think that love is loving only what you think is good, because that's literally called idolatry. And scripture has a lot to say about idolatry. Essentially, rip it out now. Uh, have you heard the story of the hair clip and the watch chain? This is love in action. This is love that changes people. A husband and wife had a first anniversary coming up. The wife had a beautiful, beautiful uh, hair. She had just flowing, flowing hair that was so gorgeous and so beautiful. And she really, really wanted these hair clips. This was written like in the 50s or 60s or something like that. And so hair clips, I guess, were about 150 bucks or something like that back then. There was no plastics and no injection molding and that sort of thing. So the husband says, oh, I really want to give my wife these hair clips because her hair is so beautiful. It's such a source. I, I want to love her. I want to show her affection. And he had a watch from his father that he gave him. And he, this was his most cherished possession. He loved this watch. So he went... 
And he sold the watch to get the money to buy the green hair clips in the window of the store that he saw and give it to his wife. So he sells the watch, he gets the hair clips, he wraps them up, he takes them home, he gives it to her on the anniversary, he says, and he walks in the door and he looks at his wife and his wife has cut all her hair off. And he's stunned. And he goes, what did you do? And she said, I have a gift for you. I didn't have enough money, but your watch didn't have a chain, and I know how much you loved it. So I cut my hair off and gave it to a wig master to make a wig to get enough money to buy you a chain for your watch. So here you go. And he goes, no. He gave up his most treasured possession for her, and she did the same for him. And they had a wonderful anniversary. Do you see, friends? Do you see how love is not action alone? She bought the chain. Wasn't that good? He bought the clips. Wasn't that good? No, because now they've given up the other thing that was so lovely. Was it affection alone? No, because they gave up. They were sacrificial with their love. It costs them something. Does love cost you something? If it's true love, if it's gospel love, it will always cost you. If it doesn't cost you anything, that's convenient. And love is not convenient. Lastly, this is big. John says, if you don't love like this, you don't know Christ. And you say, oh my gosh. And you might say, Clint, I don't love like this. Pastor, I don't do this every day. I would never cut my hair and give things away like that. I would never give my most cherished possession away. So let me assure you of something, can I? It says later on, and we're going to get to this actually next week. It says... When our hearts condemn us, Christ knows all things. When our hearts condemn us, Christ knows all things. And here's what that means, and here's what I want to assure you of. So if you're thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, I have to be perfect in my love. I have to be perfect in my love. I have to love not just with talk. I have to give everything. Here, here's all my money. Just take it. Hold on. Don't do that. That's unwise. You need food to live. But somebody else needs it, and I have it. Yes, 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 yes. That's true. So let's be wise how we serve out of our plethora that we're given. But pastor, I, I feel so awful. I could be doing more. And Christ knows that. See, one of the most incredible aspects of salvation to me is that Christ did not just die for the sins that I did commit. Do you know what Christ also died for? The sins I will commit. He died not only for the sins I did commit and have committed, but he also died for the sins that I have yet to, I don't even think of right now. I haven't even pondered it. He died for those as well. He died for all of it. Do you know what that makes me assured of? Christ went to the moment in our life when we are the worst, when we were at our lowest, when we were the most despicable, dirty, gross thing on the entire planet. And he said, I love you then. So that no matter what, after that, it's all gravy. You can always be better than the lowest moment in your life. And Christ said, I die for that person, not for their best self, not for when they come every time to church on Sunday, not when they give 50% of their income, not when they're evangelizing on the streets. No. He said, that's, that's, you know how easy it is to love somebody when you get your way all the time? Do you know how easy it is to love somebody when you get your way all the time? Christ said, I'm going to wait until you're the most disobedient. I'm going to wait till you're the worst version of yourself and then I'll die for you so that you can be assured I will always accept you. See, what's incredible about this 
is when Christ calls us to himself and asks us to give something up. He's asking us to be vulnerable. He's asking us to be open. He's asking us to welcome him into every aspect of our lives. Uh, I was at the store one time. My wife's not here. She's in Sunday school. Um, when I am solo parenting with the kids, things look different. I think that's the kindest way I could put it. Um, they just look different. So one time I went to the store, and I had all my children with me. And it's more like free-range parenting at that point. Um, like, God bless. <laughs> See you on the other side. And I'll go, no, it's not true. I'm being hyperbolic. Um, we, I'm putting things uh, together in the store. We're at a clothing store. And my children uh, decided to play hide-and-seek without telling me. Yes. And I'm like, and again, I'm like, oh, no. I have lost the children. This is going to be bad. Okay. So I'm, I'm walking everywhere. And I'm walking for a long while. And I'm getting a little frustrated. I'm getting a little scared. So I say under my breath, as I'm approaching one aisle, I say, where are they? And I spend the next 30 minutes looking for them, and I can't find them anywhere. I finally find them in the middle of a clothing rack that's circular, and they're <laughs> in it. I'm like, this is a great hiding spot. And I was calling for them the entire time. Hudson, Cohen, we didn't have Nova at the time. Hudson, Cohen, where are you? And they didn't come out. And I said, guys, why didn't you come out? And they said, Dad, we heard you be frustrated under your breath, and we were scared. I said, oh. I said, I wasn't mad. I was desperate. I was desperate to find you guys. And I was worried. I was so worried. And they said, oh. I said, Dad would never be mad at you. I was so happy to find you. I said, oh. Church, I think sometimes we think that God's going to be disappointed at us when we come to him. He's not. Church, I think sometimes we think that God's mad at us and he's going to punish us. He won't. How do I know he won't? Church, friends, let me promise you, Christ will not punish you. How do I know? God cannot punish you. How do I know? Because the wrath of God has been poured out on Jesus Christ, and you can't get two penalties from one death. Double jeopardy is attached. The death that you should have died, Christ died for you. And when he goes before God, he says, you can't do anything against them because I took it all. You can't get two punishments out of one crime. I took it all. And God goes, you're right. Yes, they're welcome. So even when we think God's going to be mad at us, even when we think God's going to be angry with us, he's not. How do I know? Because it says all of his wrath was poured out. There's nothing left. It's an empty tank. It's done. It's over. So come out of your hiding spot. Come out of your idol worship. Come out of the things that you hold on to that you think are just yours and give it freely because that's the definition of love. You're not scared anymore. You get to live because he did that exact same thing for us. Dad is calling you home. He wants to bless you. He wants to secure you. He wants full access to you. He doesn't want to punish you. He wants to give you so that we could give to others. And that's the definition of love.
If you know how much Christ has blessed you by pulling you out of your hiding places and giving you everything, then you will willingly give it to other people, which is the definition of love. Our nature has been changed because we've come out of hiding and we've been nurturing the thing that he gave us to give it to others. Friends, would you do that? Come out of your hiding spots, give up your idols, and then do the same for others. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning into this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.